This week I've been doing some math. Uh, I've always enjoyed math, and really it's one of the things I've been very good at, actually. Uh, loved math. I uh, was very good at math. Then I got out of the third grade, and from that point on, math and I did not see eye to eye in any way, shape, or form. Let's just say Bob Hostetler's not going to be inviting me to co-author a book on calculus with him anytime soon. Um, however, so, so if you're a math person, you might listen to my figures, see if I'm okay. I think I've got these right. If not, pull out your iPhone and get the calculator going. Let's see if it's uh, right. But if you started working on your uh, 21st birthday full time, and I'm going to say that full time is 45 hours a week. And this is why I'm going to say that. Because Gallup has said that 89.5% of working adult men have said that they work in excess of 40 hours a week. So I think we're safe at saying 45 hours a week. If you get two weeks of vacation a year and you, you don't have any major interruptions in your life, you're not unemployed for any amount of time, and you start working at, at 21 and you retire at 65, during that period you will have worked approximately 100,000 hours. Now, also, during that 44-year period of, of life, you've got, between 21 and 65, you only have 369,600 hours total. That's all you can deal with. And then if you sleep for eight hours a night, I know that that's all over the place, but let's just assume you sleep for eight hours a night, you will sleep for 128,000 hours. Now, 369,000 hours total. Minus 128,000 for sleep gives you about 240,000 hours of conscious time. Out of that 240,000 hours of conscious time, you're at work 100,000 of it. That's 41%. And that doesn't include commuting and getting ready for work. If you would incorporate those things, you are pushing about 50% of your conscious life between 21 and 65. You're dealing with work. Now, what makes that so interesting is Barna has said in his research, that 50% of church-going, adult-working people have said that God and their work do not intersect. Two separate categories. God is not interested in my work. What I do with my work does not relate to my faith. 50% of church-working people. This is amazing to me. You're spending half of your conscious life at work. And yet church folk will say... 50% of them, that God and my work do not intersect. What what happens in my work is not impacted by my faith at all. Now, when you think of the opportunities you have at work and the people you end up meeting at work and the temptations at work and the issues at work and on and on and on, to not have your faith impact that in any way, shape or form is an incredible loss and a travesty for the church. But what does it look like? To have your faith worked out at work. To do the job that God wants you to do on your job. What does that look like? Well, what we want to do this morning is answer that question. And we're going to use the book of Esther, I think, to get us there. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the book of Esther as we seek to answer that question. As you're turning, let me just mention a couple things about the book of Esther. First of all, it's the most celebrated book in the Bible. If you were to go to Tel Aviv in just a couple of weeks, March 8 and 9, you would step out of the plane into a major uh, costume-clad parade, Mardi Gras type of environment. They are celebrating what is called 
Purim. It is that which is reflected in the book of Esther. Part of uh, Purim would incorporate a trip to the synagogue where they would read the book of Esther. Full audience participation, booing, hissing, they hand out noisemakers at the door, the whole nine yards. So it's a very celebrated book. Second thing about the book of Esther, very secular book, most secular book in the Bible, which I think makes it a pretty Americanized book. The name of God is never mentioned. Prayer is never mentioned. The Mosaic law system is never mentioned. Abraham is never mentioned. Jerusalem is never mentioned. The temple is never mentioned. When the Jewish folk got together, putting the Old Testament together, they, you can bet that Esther was suspect in their minds. What is this book here for? What is it doing? And it's, again, a question that we're going to come back to at the end of our time this morning. Now, let me give you the background and tell you the story in a nutshell, and then we're going to kind of uh, draw some life principles. But but first character we see as we get into the book of Esther, right in chapter 1, verse 1, is a man by the name of Xerxes. Xerxes is the king of the uh, Persian Empire. Now, understanding again that Assyria had this whole area between uh, 750 and 612. Babylon had it then between 612 and 539. Assyria had it between 539 and 330. And then Alexander the Great would conquer this place in 330. Now, Xerxes reigned between 486 and 465. Uh, Xerxes, uh, his grandfather was a guy by the name of Darius. You remember Daniel chapter 4, Darius, his grandfather, is the one who threw Daniel into the lion's den. Didn't want to throw Daniel into the lion's den, right? But his advisors tricked him to signing a law into a legislation that if you prayed, you'd be thrown in the lion's den. And they knew that that's what Daniel would do. And of course, Daniel did it. And so Darius had to throw him in. Uh, but then after the next morning, when God miraculously saved Daniel... Uh, the, the king Darius takes Daniel out and throws Daniel's enemies in the lion's den. The, the, animal, the, you know, the lion's are a little bit hungry at this point because they weren't able to eat Daniel. And so they, of course, took care of uh, Daniel's uh, enemies. But we've got to keep in mind what that means for us in this story is that in Xerxes' heritage, the kings were kindly affectioned towards the Jews. It's, it's, it will come back for us. That's, that's important. So in, Dan, in, in Esther 1, it, it shouldn't surprise us that we find Xerxes uh, throwing a party. And the reason why that shouldn't surprise us is because we have a lot of secular history, actually, from Persia regarding their kings. And what we know about Xerxes is that he was a party waiting to happen. He did not take his kingship real seriously. He just liked to have fun in all kinds of ways. And so in Esther 1, we find him throwing a party, a banquet for everyone in his capital city, Susa. And several days into the party, he's in a drunken stupor, he and his cohorts, and he calls for Vashti, his queen. And according to the text, he calls Vashti in because she was beautiful to look at. And she was supposed to wear her crown. And according to tradition, that's all Vashti was supposed to wear. But Vashti puts down her, her fist and she says, forget it. I am not doing that. And you might say, good for you, Vashti. You go, girl. Way to do it. Well, of course, women's lib is not taking place in the, in the culture yet. And so Vashti is now deposed. She's out of there. That's what you get for, for back-talking the king. In time, the king gets lonely. He's looking for a queen. And so his, his, his counselors organize his beauty pageant. They say approximately 400 gals probably into this thing. And from that, he was going to choose a new queen. That was, that was Xerxes. The uh, second person we come across in the story is a guy by the name of Mordecai. What we know about Mordecai, Mordecai was Jewish. Uh, 
uh, as far as his vocation, a little bit sketchy. We're not exactly sure. We know some things about Mordecai. We know he was not married, did not have children. We, we know that somehow he had a degree of limited access to the harem, which has caused people to think he was probably a eunuch in the king's service working in the palace. He did have an adopted daughter, though, and her name was Hadassah. We know her as Esther. Uh, Esther it was a Jewish gal. She was orphaned at, at, a, at a young age and went to live with her older cousin, Mordecai. Well, remember, the, the, the beauty pageant is going on. And something that, that Scripture lets us know about Esther, Hadassah, is that she was a beautiful in form and figure. Esther was gorgeous. She was a knockout. And she's hanging out just a block from the palace. And so one day she, she's walking around and uh, the guards notice her and drag her into this beauty contest. And lo and behold, she wins the beauty contest and she is now the, the, the queen. Well, in this process, while this is going on, sidebar, uh, Mordecai is uh, sitting by the gates one day of the palace. And he's out of, of eyesight, but not out of, of earshot. And he hears a couple of guards planning an assassination attempt on the king. And so he, he takes all the stuff down and he, he gives it all to Esther, who turns it over to, to King Xerxes. They research this thing and they find out that it's true. And so the guards are executed. And all the stuff is written down in the official annals of the, the, the kingdom, including Mordecai's name. And then life goes on. Life goes on. Next person we see in the story is a guy by the name of Haman. A couple things about Haman that, that's, that Scripture wants you and I to know. One is that Haman is an Amalekite. Now we might say, so what? Who cares? All right, fine, let's move on. But the author is going to say that over and over and over ad nauseum throughout this book. He wants you and I to know that, that Haman was an Amalekite. Now, something we might not know that the original uh, recipients readers would know is that the Malachites were the folk who, who uh, when, when Israel first came out of Egypt, they were the first ones to attack the Israelites. Their goal was to annihilate the Israelites. Uh, they were the sworn enemies. They were the, the poster child for enemies against Israel, the Amalekites. Uh, also, King Saul, when King Saul was on the throne, his first king of Israel, he took it upon himself because of this to decide to annihilate the Amalekites. And he almost did it. But a couple of them escaped. And those that escaped were able to reproduce and suddenly a resurgent in Amalekites. Now, let me back up for just a second because I forgot to tell you something. King Saul, by the way, was a Benjamite, right? Mordecai was a Benjamite. And so what you find in the front end of this book is you've got that ancient rivalry back. You've got Mordecai, a Benjamite, and you've got Haman, an Amalekite. They're, they're, they're bad blood. They're bump, bumping heads from the beginning. Also, you need to know about Haman is that he was number two in the kingdom. He had risen the political ladder, and for whatever reason, King Xerxes would just as soon give him the whole kingdom and had no problem writing him blank checks to do whatever Haman wanted to do. Just go do for it. He, he loved Haman. Make it happen, Haman. So, so Haman's got all these people bowing down to him. He's loving this. Whenever you leave the palace at night, you know, all the officials and dignitaries, and everyone's bowing down to him. He's thinking, this is great. But one guy didn't bow down. Mordecai. We don't know exactly why Mordecai didn't bow. It, it wasn't worship. It was a sign of honor. It was nothing in the Mosaic law system that would prohibit him from doing this. Maybe Haman just knew 
or Mordecai knew that Haman was an Amalekite, wasn't going to bow down to him. He knows the history. He knows we're not bowing down. I'm not bowing down to that guy. Well, it makes Haman very upset, obviously. And so he starts plotting what he's going to do. He finds out that Mordecai is Jewish and that Mordecai is a Benjamite. And so Haman gets this idea that he's going to be able to finish what his forefathers tried to, but were not able to. He's going to annihilate the Jewish people. So he goes to King Xerxes. He gets Xerxes to sign a a law that such and such a date, the Jews throughout the Persian Empire would be annihilated. Everyone should take up arms against the Jewish people. And so this is in law now. And Haman is just looking at Mordecai, smiling, knowing that one day maybe he's going to be the guy. Maybe he's going to take Mordecai out. He's got it planned. Uh, now, Mordecai walks through the streets one day and he sees a telephone pole and, you know, taped to it is, you know, tractor pull this Saturday and you know, lose weight now. And right in the middle of it is, is a is a annihilate the Jews this day poster. And he's like, what is that about? So he takes this thing down and he sends it to Esther. He says, Esther, read this. Look, 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 look what's going to happen. I suggest, Esther, since you're so good in with the king that you go take care of this. And Esther says, whoa, Mordecai, hang on. Let me tell you about how things work here in the palace. Remember Vashti? (laughs) You just don't push back on the king. The way the the, the law is here, this is an invite-only deal to get in the king's presence. You don't just sashay into the king's presence. The law is if you do, you are murdered on your way in. Now, he hasn't called me in about a month, but as soon as he calls me, I'll tell you what, I'll be happy to bring this up, and I'll take care of it then. And and Mordecai pushes back to the point where she says, okay, she's going to go. So Esther goes and she invites the the, the king and Haman to a banquet. And that's where she's going to let her request be known. Well, Haman is feeling pretty good. I mean, king has given him all kinds of accolades and power and everything else. And now even the queen is recognizing his authority. I mean, remember the ancient culture. If you ate with someone, invited them to eat with you, that was a sign of, of, of intimate friendship. And even the queen is desiring to to befriend Haman. I mean, he's feeling pretty good. And so on his way home, though, that night again, everyone's bowing, but Mordecai's not bowing. He knows the Jews are going to get theirs one day, but he can't wait. So that night he has a gallows built because he's going to go to the king next morning and ask permission to hang Mordecai on it. Well, while the gallows is being built, King goes to bed, but he can't sleep. Insomnia, for whatever reason, I don't, he just can't sleep. So he calls in his royal reader. and He says, royal reader, I need you to read something boring to me so I can get to sleep. How about some of our archives? You know, read something about our military exploits, our agriculture, our weather, whatever else. You read something. And so the royal reader pulls out a scroll. Just happens to be the same scroll that had the story of Mordecai's, uh, pl- you know, foiling that, that assassination plot. And the reader reads this thing, and the king stops him and says, Royal reader, hang on, I didn't hear anything in there about what I did for Mordecai. I mean, did I, did I give this guy freedom from taxes? Did I bless his family in some incredible way for doing this? And the reader says, nah, you didn't do anything for him, king. Well, this is a major political faux pas, not just because you're supposed to be kind and nice and be generous to people who've helped you out, because what he wants to communicate to his subjects, Xerxes, is that if you hear of a political plot against me, if you hear of a coup, if you hear of someone speaking bad against me, and you come tell me about it, oh, windfall coming towards you and your family. He wants all the people to know that if you uncover something like this, it's going to be great for you. But instead, the word on the street is that that this guy, Mordecai, who uncovered the plot for the king, nothing happened. 
king doesn't really care about us. I mean, this is this is this is a bad news. So he's trying to figure out, well, what do I do? I mean, how can I backtrack and how can I honor this guy that helped me out and saved my life so everybody can see? And what, how can I make this right? And he's thinking about this all night. And the next morning, there's a knock on his door. And it's Haman trying again, remember, to find get permission to hang an enemy of the state on the gallows. This is Mordecai. But the king is looking for counsel on how to honor a friend of the state, Mordecai. And the king says, okay, Haman, listen, I know you've got business here and all, but since I'm the king, I'm going to go first. I've been up all night. Here's, here's, the, here's my problem. I got somebody in my, my kingdom that I just need to honor. I have not done a good enough job honoring this guy. I feel real bad, and I, I just really want to honor him. What can I do? And so Haman starts thinking, who's he thinking about? Who's that the king? Who's the king got in mind here? Me, I bet. He's been awful nice to me. He's given me by day more and more power. He thinks I'm the cat's meow and all those wonderful things. I'm sure he's thinking about me. So he starts thinking through his, his ideas. And he says, well, king, if, if you really want to honor this guy, I mean, if you're really serious now, this is what you should do. Go in your closet and get a robe, a royal robe that only you have ever worn. Drape this guy with it. Then go to your stables and get a royal steed, one that only you have ridden on. Put him on it. Then take one of your most trusted, powerful officials, one that, that all the people recognize as a trusted, powerful official, and have him organize a parade in this guy's honor. And then parade him through the streets of Susa, proclaiming that this is the man the king wants to honor. Yeah, that's what I do. You know, initially we think of... Kind of a stupid thing. Is that, I mean, why not gold, you know, or whatever else? Because something really cool. Why something, a parade and wearing a, a robe? What is that about? Well, what that is, I mean, this whole request is just dripping with ambition. Because the royal robe would be like the presidential seal. It was a sign. It was symbolic of, of, of pure kingly authority. Nobody has more authority than the person wearing this robe. And, and a parade with this person in the motorcade, in the king's limo, when the king's not even around. Basically, what, what he's doing here is the king would be making this person a co-regent, one to rule the empire with me. Haman is looking to get as much, being number two wasn't enough, to get as much power as he could. So the, the, imagine Haman's face when the, the king looks at him and says, that's a good idea. Go do that for Mordecai. Like, ah, Mordecai! And so he goes through and he does this. And after this minor political setback, that afternoon they go to the banquet and say, Esther, what do you want? And Esther says, I want my life. And, and uh, this vile Haman has, has come up with this great plan to destroy my people. And really, I'm Jewish. And so the king hangs Haman on his own gallows. And Mordecai, of course, is elevated now to a major position with lots of power. And so he goes ahead and, and comes up with a new set of laws and decrees that saves the Jewish people and actually hurts their enemies. And everybody's happy. And it's a fun story to read in Purim. And yeah, it's fun. Okay, that's good. But what is the purpose of the story? Why is it there? Is it just to have a good, fun story? Something for Sunday school to talk through. And what's its purpose? Well, I think we got, we got a couple of lessons out of this book. First, first lesson is that my life is in God's hands. Again, as we, as we uh, think about the history of what's going on, we recognize that um, 
the Israeli people were deported from Judah, from Jerusalem, 605 to 586. They were deported. They, were, they lost to Babylon. They were shipped out. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, all those guys, they were shipped into Babylon. Now, at this point, uh, a little bit, well, actually, just a little bit later, Persia takes over Babylon. So the Israeli people scattered all over Persia Empire. Uh, in 538, King Cyrus comes up with a decree. And we know this according to Scripture, but we also know this because we have King Cyrus's personal journal called the Cyrus Cylinder. I believe it's in the, either the British Museum or in the Louvre, where he writes that he established a decree for whatever Jewish people want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple they are allowed to. It was going to be on his bill. Go for it. And so according to the text, Scripture, 70,000 Jewish people go back to Jerusalem. And then Scripture says that those 70,000 were the remnant. Now, I don't know a lot about carpeting, but I do know the remnant is the leftover part. It's not the majority part. The majority of Israel didn't go back. Where are they at? The majority of the captives. We don't, they're still scattered throughout Persia. Uh, maybe their kids are in school and they can't move right now. Maybe their parents that they're taking care of are a little bit too elderly now and they're just not going to make the trip back. Maybe they're thinking, you know, so what? We go back to Jerusalem. We're still under Persian rule. And besides that, Jerusalem is a shambles right now. We're talking poverty level living. And I feel pretty comfortable right now. I just don't want to go back. And so the vast majority of Israel do not go back. And so maybe they're thinking, well, you know, these guys that go back, it's good for them. And God's going to be there back in the holy land and the promised land. And God promised this land to Abraham and, and it's going to be good. And God's going to be there. But what about us still living in a pagan land with a pagan government and pagan rules being made and pagan holidays? Does God care about us? And the book of Esther is given for us. We're in that same category. to Let us know that, yes, he does. And he's intimately involved in your life through his hand of providence. Um, providence. Providence is God's uh, being in full control of everything, uh, working out the circumstances for his plan. So God, sovereign control of everything, working out the circumstances for his, his plan. Let's look at the book again real, real quick, just portions of it. Because God is all over this book. The main character, by the way, is, is not Xerxes or Haman or, or Mordecai or even Esther. The main character is God. You, you have at one point the, 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 the king who's lost Vashti and he's lonely now. His counselors decide to have a beauty pageant to find the new queen. Now, this is unheard of. Uh, to our knowledge, this never happened previous in Persian history and it never happened again after this. A king's marriages were usually political in nature. Romance was not necessarily a part of it. But at this point, this one time, it just so happens that they're going to have a beauty contest. And it just so happens that the most beautiful girl in the empire is living just down the block from the palace. And it just so happens that this most beautiful girl in the empire is Jewish. And it just so happens that this most beautiful girl in the empire living a block from the palace is Jewish and single. And it just so happens that this very said such girl is noticed by the guards and taken to be a part of this beauty contest. And then it just so happens that she wins the contest of, they say, some 
perhaps 400 girls involved. But she didn't just win the contest. I mean, she really won Xerxes' heart. Let's see if we've, if we've, if we've got it. In verse 17... I believe it's chapter 2. It says, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other versions. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So he, she got his, his heart. Matter of fact, in 2.18, he would be so uh, enmeshed or so overjoyed, so mesmerized with, with Esther that he would call his wedding day a national holiday. You know, I mean, it's Esther Day. I don't know what it is. You know, Esther Day. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's just going to be a national holiday. And now the people are celebrating because they're using the parties, right? It was a major thing. Now, this is amazing. It just so happens that the new queen, who's Jewish, has the most powerful man in the empire, you know, eating out of the palm of her hand before there's any, before there's any threat. And then it just so happens... That Mordecai just happens to be sitting in the right place at the right time to hear these these guards making their plan to assassinate the king. And then it just so happens that when they the word gets around, they write all this stuff down in the journals. They include Mordecai's name, which might not have been what was supposed to happen. And it just so happens that the king makes this major political faux pas and forgets to reward him at that time in that point in history. And then it, it just so happens that when Esther goes to, to, to the king, uh, this is, this is in, very interesting to me, that when, remember when she goes initially, the king says, Esther, what do you want? And, and what she's, it doesn't, shouldn't surprise us that because she's so honored by him that, that he pardons her and lets her in. But what happens to, to her spirit? She freezes up. She, she, her mission, she's supposed to be pleading the cause of her people and save us, but, but she freezes up. And I don't know if Haman's standing right there and she sees him and she knows this guy's an Amalekite and that he hates. Maybe she knows that, you know what, no one really knows that I'm Jewish. But as soon as I put this out there, I'm an endangered species. I don't know what it is, but, but fear kind of takes over. And so she shuts down and she says, ah, I'll come at lunchtime and I've got a party for you. And at that point, I'll tell you my request. And so they go to this party. And after lunch, the king says, 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 go ahead, Esther, tell us your request. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And Esther freezes up again. And she says, ah, probably you have never procrastinated when you've had to do a very difficult thing before. But Esther did here. And she said, ah, how about another party tomorrow? You know, it's, it's interesting. It sure looks like Esther's fear is controlling Esther's fear is what's, what's, what's ruling the day here. Are they ever going to be saved? Her courage is working, but she's very human. She's very human as well. Well, it just so happens that that night between the two parties, uh, when Haman is back home making a gallows for Mordecai, it just so happens that the king cannot sleep. And then it just so happens that he calls in a reader of all the things to try to get to sleep, not warm milk or anything else. He's going to go with the reader. And it just so happens that the reader of all the scrolls he could pull, pulls the one that talks about Mordecai. And it just so happens that as he reads this, that the king had not previously taken care of Mordecai. And so it just so happens when Haman comes in, that Haman thinks the king's request of how do I honor this person is about him. It just so happens that Haman paints a request that would give this person power to overturn or to fix any, any rule set on annihilating the Jews that would be supreme power to actually establish the Jewish people. That came from Haman. 
just so happens. Now, even if you're an incredible skeptic of Scripture, at some point, don't you sit back and go, there's just an awful lot of just so happens here. I mean, the coincidences just keep piling and piling and piling up. It almost looks like it's been choreographed, doesn't it? I mean, everyone's doing their thing. Everyone's practicing free will. You've got the party guy over here into the party stuff. And you've got the evil Haman doing his evil thing. And, and you've got fear rolling with, with that. You've got everyone doing their thing. Free will is happening. But still, in the midst of it all, it looks as if maybe somebody's in control of this. This is why God can say in Romans 8, he says, all things work together for good. You know, he couldn't say that. Unless he was in control of all things, all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. My life is in his hands. I'm not necessarily where I am doing what I'm doing because of my own ingenuity or cleverness or those sort of things, but because of a sovereign, graceful God. James 1.17 says this, puts it this way. It says, every good and perfect gift... It doesn't come because I've earned it, because I was shrewd, because I was wise, because I made it happen. It's from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. First lesson from Esther is that your life and mine is not uh, subject to the number 13. It's not under the, the, the realm of a horoscope. It's not in the hands of a, of a crazy guy with a gun. It's not in the hands of of an American-hating terrorist. It's not in the hands of a drunk driver or a maverick disease or the Supreme Court or the President of the United States or or a pagan boss. It's in the hands of a sovereign, providentially working God. Now, let me... uh, I'm not going to get into this right now, but let me put this on the table because I know it could be out there. What do you do with evil and pain and suffering that happens in this world, how do, you, how do you put that together with this sovereign, graceful God? And that's an incredible question, and it's a big question, and we will deal with it, but we just can't put it on the table this morning for the time it's going to take. That's a series, and we'll do it. Uh, but based on the authority of Scripture, even though tears can blind our eyes and even though confusion can blind our mind in the midst of I don't understand what's going on. It looks like evil Hamans are having the day or party and Xerxes are having the day. You know, people who are supposed to run in the country who aren't doing well or, or fear is running the day or my own inabilities are running the day. We can rest on the idea that no sovereign God is running the day. I think we can we can say that nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my sovereign God. Nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my sovereign God. So my life is in God's hands, therefore I will trust him. A second lesson is that my position is from God's hands, therefore I will honor him. When, when Mordecai first tells Esther to go, gives her the plan, go talk to the king, she, she balks. She says, ah, I don't know what's going to happen. In, in chapter 4, verse 12, she tells, you know, Mordecai she's not interested. In verse 12, it says, When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think because you are in the king's house, don't think that you're so uppity as a queen, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. He, Mordecai knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows the Jews are not going to be annihilated. They may not escape uh, unscathed, but they're not going to be annihilated here. God's going to protect his people one way. But if ever we're in a position where God has placed us and we do not honor him, it's dangerous for us and for our family. And then he says this line. It's a great line. And who knows? But that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Esther, you think you're in the palace just because you're pretty? Why do you think maybe God made you pretty? Because he was going to use that to get you where he needed you to be. Uh, God has put us where we are. He's given us what we need to get where we are, but for a purpose. Let me ask you. uh, He's asked. Esther, why are you in the palace? Have you ever considered that you're here for such a time as this? Why are you at GE? Why are you at Lourdes? Why are you at Steris? Why are you at Hammett? Why are you at St. Vincent? Why are you in the educational system? Why are you in retail? Why are you where you are? You ever think that maybe God has a plan for you? He arranged everything to get you where you are because he's got a plan you in that regard. Let me mention something just to some folk who don't like their jobs. And according to Gallup, 70 percent of us do not like our jobs. It's not a sin to not like your job. Uh, I don't believe it's according to what you do with that not like. Right. Um, but you need to know that God has placed you there and he did not place. I'm not saying that that's going to be the job you've got supposed to have for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't be trying to get out of it. All those wonderful things. But while you're there, you need to know God has placed you there and he did not place you there to complain about it. He did not place you there for it to create despair in your life. And he did not put you there in order for you to rebel against it by being negligent and not giving everything you're supposed to give to your work. Uh, Our faith is against the whole crossroads deal that our faith is not just a Sunday thing. It intersects. With our life, throughout our life, it intersects with our work, it intersects with my school, it intersects with my date with my girlfriend on Saturday night. It intersects with every aspect of our life. It's supposed to. Uh, Our faith is probably best seen in those situations versus a a Sunday morning. So, So let me mention something as well to those folk who find themselves in a leadership position, maybe you're, you're leading your, your team, you're leading your division, your department at, at work, a project. Maybe you're leading your, your, your company. Again, an, an understanding of why you're there. No doubt your abilities and your charisma and your character and your competency and all those wonderful things have aided to get you there. But I believe, based on Scripture, that God has given you those things to get you there. And therefore, our our job is to honor him in the position he's placed us in. Well, how do we honor him? Well, a a couple of ways. Real quick. First is is ethics. Ethics. Um, Bill Hybels, a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, he said that when uh, President Clinton was in office, Hybels was one of his advisors. And he said he would go to D.C. and at one point he was in uh, the Oval Office with the president. They'd been working through devotional stuff that they were supposed to be doing and everything. And for whatever reason, uh, President Clinton's stuff wasn't wasn't done. And, and so Hybels uh, challenged him on it. And at that point, President Clinton slapped down a four inch report. And he said, you need to understand something. This is a daily briefing. I get one of these every morning. 
It talks about all the military issues in, in the world and the financial issues and, and, and uh, domestic and abroad, everything. And I am supposed to digest this and understand it and live the rest of my day before breakfast based on this thing. I don't have time. And, I, and Pastor Heibel says at that point, he put down the Bible. He said, Mr. President, until this, the Bible, is more important than this, the briefings, you will never honor God in this office. Unless we... Or get out of a thinking that says my work and my, my God, my faith are two separate things. Unless we can say that, that here, the most important thing, the reason why I'm here is to do what God has called me to do. That's why I'm here. And the negotiating my, my integrity, it's just not an option. It's just not an option. I cannot go down that road. This pertains, I think, to how we treat people. Let me talk to you if you're a supervisor for a second. If you are in a supervisory role, no doubt you have to have the straight up conversations and you got to do the very hard things and you have to make some very unpopular calls and you have to uh, fix the inappropriate actions and attitudes. You have to do those things to not do those things is negligence. It's negligence for what God has called you to do. However, doing those things cannot be divorced from the fruit of the spirit. It's, It's horrific, isn't it? When you hear of. Of Christians who are, have risen to power and they are in positions of, of leadership, but all of the people underneath them speak of how uh, pejorative and belittling and harsh and angry and mean this individual is. Uh, that ought not to be, right? As a supervisor, I need to recognize that the only reason why my name is a little bit higher on the org chart than theirs is because of the sovereign decree of God. God has put those people in the positions that he has called them to. And while they may have a responsibility to serve me, the business, I have got a biblical responsibility to serve them as well. Have the hard conversations. But you have to have them with the sensitivity, with patience, with love, with kindness, with gentleness. It's part of, it's part of the, the, the Christian deal. Here's, here's a great verse if you're a boss. I mean, it's a great verse if you're not a boss. But it's, it's a great verse. Micah 6, 8. It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. That's having the hard conversations. That, that's not allowing inappropriate things to continue. To act justly is, is to make the hard decisions and do the things that no one else wants to do and correct the, the inappropriate behavior. That's to act justly, but it doesn't stop there, does it? It says, and to love mercy. Uh, while you're acting justly, you have to love mercy. These things, this is a tension, a major tension. But they both are required. And at the process, while this is going on, it's undergirded with walking humbly with your God. It's going to give you the courage. It's going to give you the love to do that which you, which you need to do. Now, if you employ this biblical principle in your workplace, I'm going to honor God in my workplace. One of a couple of things can happen to you. Number one, believe it or not, it may go to your advantage. We think it's all going to be bad. Well, maybe not. Uh, look at Daniel, look at Joseph, look at Stanley Tam with his uh, my business belongs to God. There are uh, it is speckled out there of people who, by honoring God, incredible things happen. You're going to get the corner office and you might get a seat on the company jet or the keys to the company condo in Barbados or, you know, golden parachute by honoring God. On the other hand, though, you may get kicked out of the plane without a parachute at all. Right. You may be released. You may be non-promotable because you've decided to honor God. 
with this thing. It's interesting. When Mordecai finally talks Esther into going, when Esther finally makes that decision, this is what she says in chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all of those, all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And if I perish, I perish. What a mindset. I'm going to honor God with my work. And you know what? If I get promoted, good. But if I get fired, I get fired. But I'm going to honor God with my work. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a uh, pastor in colonial America, it said of Edwards by philosophers today, the theologians today, educators today, that, that the new world has yet to produce a mind as great as that of Jonathan Edwards. He was the president of Princeton in, in its beginning years. Um, Edwards set up about 63, four, I don't know, 60-something resolutions that he would use to, to run his life. Resolution, he says, resolved, all men should live to the glory of God. Resolved, secondly, that whether anyone else does or not, I will. Would you be willing in your work and students in your school and your everything else, people in your, your lives, to say, resolved, everybody should live in such a way to honor God with their work, whatever. But resolve, secondly, whether anyone else does or not, I will. Would you, be, would you be willing to make that commitment yet this morning? That's a scary commitment. And I can't tell you what the out, outlook is going to be with that, but I do know this. However that goes, God will honor. <laughs>